Hey, listeners, before we get started, if you're enjoying these episodes, you can actually check them out on YouTube in full video. You can just search Honest Ecommerce and you'll get pulled right to our channel. Make sure you subscribe and ring the bell for all the updates. You just have to evaluate what the platform risk is relative to the opportunity that that platform offers you. Welcome to Honest Ecommerce, a podcast dedicated to cutting through the BS and finding actionable advice for online store owners. I'm your host, Chase Clymer, and I believe running a direct-to-consumer brand does not have to be complicated or a guessing game. On this podcast, we interview founders and experts who are putting in the work and creating real results. I also share my own insights from running our top Shopify consultancy, Electric Eye. We cut the fluff in favor of facts to help you grow your e-commerce business. Let's get on with the show. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Honest E-Commerce. I'm your host, Chase Clymer. And today, I'm welcoming to the show the founder and CEO of IQ Bar, a leading brain and body nutrition company based in Boston, Massachusetts, William Nitza. How are you doing today, bud? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Oh, absolutely. Um, so let's let's just kind of dive on in. Um, obviously, uh, well, I guess maybe quickly, let's talk about the, the product itself so people can kind of understand where we're going to end up. So just look, give me a quick crash course for the uninitiated of what IQ Bar is and kind of the products that you're selling? Sure. Yeah. So we're a brain and body nutrition company. Uh, we started out purely as a, a protein bar company, but we're now... Uh, we have a hydration stick pack product as well. So we're, we're more of a platform today than when we started. We're a brain and body nutrition company um, centering on you know, science-based uh, brain nutrients um, as well as body nutrients. So everything we make is good for the brain and body. Absolutely. And you, um, kind of per- had some personal experience with this back in your twenties. Uh, so I guess let's just start the story there. Yeah. So I, I didn't, uh, so out of college, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. And I was selling and marketing software. I didn't have uh, entrepreneurial ambitions until a few years into that. But I started feeling bad physically at my, at my job. I was working long hours and uh, just felt lethargic, had headaches, um, you know, just a, sort of a host of low-grade cognitive issues that made my quality of life not great. And what I learned was, I mean, obviously, it doesn't help to, to work insanely long hours and sleep and exercise play a role. But what I learned was my diet was was really the centerpiece of what, you know, was the main culprit. And more specifically, you know, eating a bunch of carbs and not enough healthy fats and um, not enough fiber and things like that were, were really causing the vast majority of, of those downstream uh, impacts. And so I got really into nutrition at that point and I started reading voraciously on nutrition um, and even specifically on brain nutrition, for example, a book called Grain Brain was what really kicked things off for me, which I found just endlessly fascinating and terrifying at the same time. Basically, the premise being that the things you eat um, have an impact on your brain, not just your body. We think about, you know, if I eat a pizza, what does it do to my gut or my waistline? And the equally good question, maybe better question is what does it do to your brain? Uh, but we don't really think about that uh, all too often um, because there aren't nerve endings in your brain. So you don't know when you hurt your brain, quote unquote. Um, And then 40 years later, you get some neurodegenerative disease and you think, oh, well, that was, that was genetic, you know, but actually, you know, maybe, and maybe it was partially, but the fact that you ate pizza for 40 years, um, 
certainly played a role in that. So anyway, I got really interested in nutrition and this was at the, the rise of paleo and Whole30 and CrossFit and all these other nutritionally relevant trends and got obsessed with this idea of brain food. So brain food, quote unquote, um, what I mean by that is like a packaged ready to eat food, not like, you know, baking salmon or whatever, you know, it didn't really exist. And I, and I didn't understand why it didn't exist. It, that same value proposition and functionality existed within, you know, the pill space and powder space and supplement space, but didn't really exist in, in ready to eat food. So, so that was the, the spark and then kicked off this whole, whole entrepreneurial journey. Absolutely. It says like, so back in 2017, you were kind of ideating on building, you know, this protein bar essentially trying to trying to figure out the formulation how long did it take from you know you and your kitchen kind of working on this thing till you had like a product in hand that was ready to hit the market a solid year <laughs> uh, i had no background in food or beverage or cpg and i didn't know anyone who had a background in it um so i had to start at like zero so i didn't the starting point wasn't really like start tinkering it was actually just it was actually more so like solicit information and develop a mental model of how I'm going to go about this. And the first way I did that, the only way I, I, I knew how to do that was to find a bunch of people who knew more than I did, call them and ask them a bunch of questions. Um, so, you know, other entrepreneurs uh, being the other people there. Um, and so I did that and I got answered a bunch of questions that were um, just gave me that baseline knowledge. You know, how do you um, set up a supply chain. How do you manufacture something? What are the generally? What should my cogs be? What should my gross margin be? Like all, all of those baseline things that I think you you just have to hammer out before you get get prototyping. I, I, that was my first step. Um, and then once I had felt I had triangulated enough answers there, um, I you know started getting all these suppliers to ship in you know, um, ingredients, um, and, and in tandem just was observing what's out there in the market, right? You can, the good and bad thing about food and beverages, you can, to a degree, reverse engineer things, um, because <laughs> there's not many industries where the product has the like secret on the back, i.e. the ingredient deck. And you know that, you know, anything on the shelf that's been there for a while has gone through many iterations and, They've solved a lot of problems, right? So don't don't reinvent the wheel, right? So that, but you know, you, there's a lot of work from that point onward. But but it gives a good starting point. So you have your your informational starting point, and then you have your competitive landscape product starting point, and then it's just from there, yeah, ordering a bunch of ingredients, tinkering in my kitchen. I mean, just brute trial and error. But you know, that period, it's all in the the nuance. It's all in the last five percent. And and that took a full year. And I was doing that at nights and on weekends while I, I had my other job. Now you mentioned earlier before you even invested in like buying products and like iterating on it and trying to build something on your own, you were asking other people questions. Is there any advice from back then of you speaking to people that are, you know, a few steps ahead of you that you wish that you know you want to share with the audience? Advice in terms of like ask, asking good questions or, or reaching out to the right people or... Or, or both, you know, whether answers that you got from these mentors helpful that you'd want to share or just anything from that whole experience that you'd want to share. Well, yeah. I mean, look, I, I'm them now, right? I'm like a, several years into this. So like, 
maybe I'll maybe I'll provide some color to the process of just that that first process. How do you get data? How do you aggregate and solicit data? Um, which, I, by the way, I, I think that's the right move. Like that, I I don't regret any of that. I think I don't know if I would do that any differently. But basically, like the the flow is like find um, you know the closest analog to what you're trying to do. If you're trying to make an ice cream company, like find an ice cream company. Um, find a, a founder who lives near you who has an ice cream company, and you might think, well, why would they tell you anything? And you know, they're a competitor, and yada yada. I don't know if it's ironic or not, but that just seems not to be the case that that people are super guarded. It's actually quite collegial in in the food and bev space and CPG space. And even in cases where it isn't, like there's always people you can find that are because it's just like the, the pie is big enough. Like the market is so big for food and bev, um, you know, it's literally everyone, you know, people over time just learn that they're not going to like win or get ahead by being super guarded. So anyway, so just re- be shameless, like reach out to them, LinkedIn message them, email them, call them. Um and be prepared, like know the exact questions you want to ask that specific person, right? Because they're, you know, do your homework too on who, you know, that person and, and their company as well. Like maybe they're two years in, so they haven't figured out like scale phases five and six, but they've figured out like one and two. So ask questions relevant to, to their context. Um, and then I guess another just, thing I would add is just a huge caveat of just like, just because they did the, the things they did to get to where they are, doesn't mean those are the right things. Like I would actually, I wrote a LinkedIn post on this the, the other day, which is like, you shouldn't use advice or anecdote as if it's gospel or fact. It's just another data point. So you need to stress test that data point. And there's a couple of ways to stress test it. You can research and aggregate data. Right. The internet's a beautiful thing for that. But you can also talk to three other people and ask them the same question. And if five people, you know, out of five people, four of them say one thing and the fifth says another thing, well, probably the four are more likely to be right than, than the fifth. But if you had just talked to the fifth, I mean, you could be going off on a wild goose chase, right? So just aggregate as much data as you can, both anecdotal and and research-based data um, and question all of it, right? Like that should all just give you a starting point, not an ending point. So once you start, you're going to start aggregating the, your own data and then just follow the data, honestly. Like there gets a threshold where you can start just following the data and entirely jettison anecdote. Yeah, you just shared so much awesome information. I really want to talk about the whole concept of just reaching out to your competitors and talking to them. I brought this up a few times on the podcast. And it is probably more rare that you'll run into somebody that won't talk to you than that will. It's just wild. And you're right. It's like there's more than enough business out there. And most real entrepreneurs recognize it. And they are they want to help you not make the same mistakes that they made because those things still annoy them to this day. So they want to help anyone else out there that they can. And also, like you build good karma, like you build an advocate 
in that person. Like that's the thing. It's like, it's not like you do quote unquote lose something, but the thing you lose is so de minimis. It's so tiny. Like let's say I give a, you know, a competitor an insight, like, okay, they, they could technically go use that insight and they could technically steal point. 0.01% of my market share from customers that otherwise would have bought me and yada, yada, right? It's not, it's not like unequivocally awesome, but the benefit is just so, so much bigger than that. Like you get an advocate, you have a, you know, quid pro quo, like they, they then want to help you. And you know, they mention that you help them and, you know, then, then, you know, they're a free evangelist for you. And so it's, it's just, seems to be way overweighted and towards the, the positive. Oh, absolutely. Now, within your entrepreneurial journey, are there any other kind of situations that you, you came across that might have been kind of more difficult and challenging to to get to that next step? Yeah, I mean, a- endless. Um, I, it's sort of like... I could give you a laundry list, but I can give you a laundry list even within like segments of the business. Like... There's the, the, I mean, the obvious ones, the ones that are like the most nightmarish and disastrous are our manufacturing and supply chain related ones. Like you literally can't make the product when you need to, or you in, in making the product, some terrible thing happens. So like a classic example that I, I share fairly often is like one time, this was like super early on. We, we had a PO from uh, our, our first major customer in the drug channel. And we had never gotten a massive order like that. It was like over a million. Actually, no, I think it was like, yeah, it was like roughly a million bars. And we had never made a hundred thousand bars. And so we got all our ducks in a row, but we were admittedly like pretty rushed and trying to get everything out. And the whole team gets, you know, piles in the car and drives to the, the co-packer, the manufacturer. Uh, and we start at like, an insanely early time. It was like it was like four forty five a.m. or five a.m. That stuff kicks off super early at, at these co-packers, and the product like mixes well and slabs well. The slab machine is the machine you you create bars on, and then you know, everything's going swimmingly until the bars get wrapped, and you know we look at the bar and it looks great and we're high-fiving and then the guy comes over and he's like yeah the wrappers aren't sealing properly and i was like what he's like well the, the wrappers aren't sealing properly their air can get in the wrapper it's you know it's gonna kill the shelf life this is a non-starter like this is a huge problem and i didn't even know that was like a possibility it's like the wrapper company didn't you know put the proper amount of of glue on the wrapper and like, like how does that even happen but it but it did happen and we were creating the order for our you know a million bar order for this first customer and so it's like you know that's the one that just like really like sticks in your head of just like holy crap what do i do and of course your whole team's there and your smile just turns into like a stoic face and it was brutal but we you know called 10 wrapper companies found one who could turn a wrapper set of wrappers around in like five days, we get wrappers, we rerun it, and you know we get the order out the door. Cost money, cost tens of thousands of dollars, cost a lot of heartache and, and all that. But um, I mean, those are like the ones that are like <laughs> super relatable. They're the most tangible. 
But I mean, other than that, there's, I could go into endless challenges to, to scaling. I mean, a lot of them are internal or building the best possible team. Um, every, to some degree, everything is a derivative of that. Absolutely. Uh, what I want to point out there is that was probably at that moment, the biggest just kind of gut shot to the business at the time. And you guys per- persevered through it. You're still here. And that's something that I really want to like point out. It's just like, it's really hard to, you know, bankrupt your business on one decision. And you know what I mean? It wasn't even a decision. It was a failure that was that was completely outside of your control too. So like, you know, what I want to say here is like being an entrepreneur is like things like that are going to happen and you just have to roll with the punches and say, okay, how are we going to solve for this? Yeah. I mean, the, not only are they going to happen, they're going to happen like weekly um, for years. <laughs> I mean, it is true that that entrepreneurship is not for the faint of heart. Like it, it's it wears you down, but it, it really is the case that like ninety percent of the battle is just showing up the next day. Like there's always a path out. There's always a path out, and you know you want to get to the point where ideally you, your problems are more strategic and less tactical. You know they're less about a wrapper not sealing, and they're more about how do we grow thirty percent rather than 15% month over month or, or whatever it is. Um, so you're never going to get... Like my favorite quote of all time is, is a Greg LeMond. He's a famous cyclist quote um, where he says, it never gets easier. You just go faster. So, so your degree of difficulty is actually constant. You just go faster to compensate for that. If you're struggling with scaling your sales, maybe Electric Eye can help. Our team has helped our clients generate millions of dollars in additional revenue through our unique brand scaling framework. You can learn more about our agency at electriceye.io. That's E-L-E-C-T-R-I-C-E-Y-E.io. Mesa is the expansion pack for your Shopify store to level up your brand. By turning all your apps into your business epicenter, Mesa can help lighten your workload and tame the day-to-day chaos of running your store. Join successful brands like Mudwater, Chubbies, and Golden to learn how to use clever workflows to get more done without more overhead. Whether you need to order details in Google Sheets, products added on Etsy, or customer information updated in your CRM, Mesa connects your data where it's needed most. To put it quite simply, Mesa is a better way to work. Browse pre-made templates for Shopify's most popular apps to get your first automation up and running in minutes. Search Mesa, that's M-E-S-A, in the Shopify App Store and download the app today. Is your store holiday ready? Now is the time to make sure you and your team are prepared for the busy season ahead. Gorgeous, an omni-channel help desk built for e-commerce has machine learning functionality that takes the pressure off small support teams and gives them the tools to manage a large number of inquiries at scale, especially during the holiday season. Gorgeous combines all your different communication channels like email, SMS, social media, live chat, and even phone into one platform and gives you an organized view of all your customer inquiries. Their powerful functionality can save your support team hours per day and makes managing customer orders a breeze. Merchants can close tickets faster than ever with the help of pre-written responses integrated with customer data to increase the overall efficiency of customer support. Their built-in automations also free up time for support agents to give better answers to complex product-related questions, providing next-level support, which helps increase sales, brand loyalty, and recognition. 
Eric Bandholtz, the founder of Beard Brand, says, We're a seven-figure business, and we have essentially one person on customer support and experience. It's impossible to do it without tools such as Gorgeous to help us innovate. Learn how to level up your customer support by speaking to their team. Visit gorgeous.grsm.io slash honest. Mention this podcast when you sign up to get two months free. That's G-O-R-G-I-A-S dot G-R-S-M dot I-O slash H-O-N-E-S-T. Today's show is sponsored by the Be Profit app for e-commerce sellers. If you're looking to get a crystal clear picture of your online store's profitability, the best way to do that is with the Be Profit Profit Tracker. Your online business probably has a ton of different expenses that often shift and change. What if you could keep accurate track of things like ad spend and production costs and get an accurate profit margin calculation without the headache of spreadsheets or half-baked apps? That's where Be Profit comes in. Be Profit lets you analyze all of your store's data quickly and accurately to stay on track and optimize your profits. I know a lot of our listeners out there probably keep track of their profits and expenses with a spreadsheet. That will work for a while, but as your store starts to scale up, that simply isn't a viable method of accurately measuring profitability anymore. Be Profit can change all of that for you. Available on Shopify and all the other top e-commerce platforms, the app offers advanced analytic tools to turn mountains of data into intuitive charts and graphs in the blink of an eye. Customize your dashboard, discover valuable insights, and zoom in on the metrics that matter most to you. Take it a step further and gain full control over your data by creating and exporting custom reports. You can even find out which are your most valuable products, top performing ads, best customer cohorts, and so much more with the Be Profit Profit Tracker. Visit beprofit.co today to start your seven day trial. Don't forget to use code HONEST15, that's H O N E S T 1 5, to get an exclusive 15% off any plan you choose for the lifetime of your plan. That's bprofit.co, discount code H-O-N-E-S-T-1-5. Getting an online business off the ground isn't easy. So if you find yourself working late, tackling a to-do list that's a mile long with your fifth cup of coffee by your side, remember, great email doesn't have to be complicated. That's what Klaviyo is for. It's the email and SMS platform built to help e-commerce brands earn more money by creating genuine customer relationships. Once you set up your free Klaviyo account, you can start sending beautiful branded messages in minutes thanks to drag and drop design templates and built-in guidance. And with e-commerce specific recommendations and insights, you can keep growing your business as you go. Get started with a free account at klaviyo.com slash honest. That's K-L-A-V-I-Y-O dot com slash H-O-N-E-S-T. Now we talked a lot about uh, you know the mindset of entrepreneurship and, and stuff like that, but can we talk a little bit more about the the brass tacks of getting a brand off the ground? Like, so you've got, you obviously you've got the product and and you did that big massive order. But before that, you know, you as you're trying to break into the market, what was uh, kind of your approach to like getting those first set of customers? What was the go to market strategy? Yeah, I mean, CPG is weird because um, it's very much not tech uh, as much as some people would like to dress it up uh, uh, as such. Um, so you're not going to get a good valuation out the gate. You have to, you have to like everything you do has to be proving it. Um, you need, you know, IE sales. <laughs> everything works backwards from sales. And so you can't just like create a PowerPoint deck and now you have a $5 million company and someone's going to give you a million bucks for it, you know, as an investment. So that was always the challenge is like the chicken or egg problem. You need sales to justify a valuation. Um, but you need a decent valuation to justify the money to raise to then put to work to go get those sales. 
so we did crowdfunding as a way to solve that chicken or egg problem, which I, I mean, this was back in uh, late 2017, early 2018. I have no idea what the state of like Kickstarter and Indiegogo are now, but at least at the time, it was still a pretty good way to, to, to do it. It was not like a story where, you know, I made some bars in my kitchen and then I sold them to my neighbors and then I sold them to the local bodega. And then, you know, I just grew that concentric circle wider and wider. It was like zero to a hundred. At least that was the goal. Like we have zero sales now. How do we get, you know, $50,000 of sales immediately? Um, and so that, that again, Kickstarter is a great way to, to do that. It's insanely hard, of course, um, because you have to push people to your page. No one's just like, well, actually, that, that's not entirely true. There are a bunch of organic backers who just like to be first adopters. But in order to get them on board, you need to first develop momentum, which is only going to happen if you push a lot of people to your page and get backers. And so, you know, that's a whole, I could do a whole podcast in and of itself of, of the, the wild world of running a Kickstarter. Um, but we, you know, <laughs> broke a lot of rules, entered a lot of gray areas, um, and just figured it out. And, um, so yeah, we sold between Indiegogo and Kickstarter. We sold about $90,000 worth of product. And then, you know, and then we had sort of proven the concepts. Of course, we had sold Phantom, a Phantom product, right? It's thin air until you actually sell it to the people or send it to the people. But enough that we could justify like, okay, we're, we're this value. And, and it's really not so much. I think people characterize Kickstarter wrong a lot of the time. It's not really not a way to get the money to start your business. Like that's not doing much for you. The way to prove your concept to then go raise... So money, you know, ideally from angels, friends and family um, to truly start, you know, start your business because now you prove that the concept is legit. Absolutely. So that was how we started. Awesome. Yeah. And then uh, we've had a few brands on the show that have started that way in various verticals. And, you know, getting getting traffic to the Kickstarter page is always an interesting challenge. Um, and then after that, you know, producing that first big run of product and transitioning the brand from like a Kickstarter page to like an actual brand with an actual website and building that funnel out all like for the direct consumer model always seems to be the next big hurdle. Did you guys experience the same thing? Yes. Um, you know, hopefully you fulfill your Kickstarter and then you get a lot of some subset of those people like it and want to want to buy again. And then so certainly have a website and have the ability to sell you know, follow on orders to, to those folks um, and do everything. There's like the classic uh, saying, I forget who said this, but it was from some Y Combinator online course or something like that, which is do things that don't scale. Might've been Brian Chesky from Airbnb, but like just reach yeah, out. No, to I, I listened to that podcast and it, everyone go listen to it. It's Y Combinator has the whole recordings of it. You can find it on whatever podcast thing you're listening to. And it is a fantastic series of lectures. Yeah. It's like how to start a startup or something like that. Yeah. It was so good. Yeah. So good. It's every single one is like incredible. But one of the ones that really resonated with me was do, do things that they don't scale. So like Airbnb, their example is they would actually go or either they would go or they would pay photographers to go take really good photos, high production quality photos of the apartments and that kickstarted trust and, you know, early adopters of the product. And so like for you, like reach out to every one of those customers. Like 
ask them why, the, you know, develop an emotional connection, build early evangelists, respond to every email. And by the way, you're doing this all yourself probably. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you build up, you build up a little bit of a base. Of course, that's not, you know, you need to grow that base. So then, then comes in like the same stuff, every, you know, we still do today, you know, um, Facebook advertising and Instagram advertising and Google AdWords advertising. And, um, you know, uh, to the degree we, we can and have the bandwidth for it, organic content creation. And, you know, that's honestly something we, 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 that's a big focus for us this year and we're four years into it. And so, yeah, so we rolled that into a website and did all of those things. Of course, having a good website with a good conversion rate hygiene and all that are, is, is, is a good thing. Um, but we, we rolled that into a website and then we rolled that website into an Am- into Amazon and, and Amazon is just such a wild phenomenon, honestly, as like a brand, like just the fact you could list something on Amazon with a decent title, decent pictures and a decent description and just start selling it like that. That's how wild Amazon is. I think it's a, maybe an unpopular opinion. A lot of people complain about like Amazon fees and things like that, that they don't really talk about how insanely beneficial it is to plug into the network of Amazon consumers just out the gate. Um, yeah, the velocity is just insane there. And, and and you can, you know, if you play the game right, like you can just get pretty darn big pretty quickly. And so, yeah, so that was the second thing we did. And then in tandem, we started poking around the brick and mortar world. And so now today it's, you know, we're I think still slightly majority e-commerce revenue, but but almost half is brick and mortar at this, at this point. That's amazing. Yeah, the Amazon versus your own channel, be it a Shopify store or whatever, is a conversation that you just have to have with yourself. It's like, you know what I mean? And I, I can see arguments on both sides, but when it comes down to it, I think that the velocity that Amazon can impact your sales and allow you to get to a higher economy of scale to, on like your cost per good, I think is worth it in the end, especially if like people are mad about the cut that Amazon takes. But then if you think about it, it's like, well, you're going to spend almost that amount of money to acquire a customer through a different channel anyway. A hundred percent. And you make up for it on the fulfillment on the back end. They're going to fulfill it cheaper than you would have. Yeah. So there's there's pros and cons to it. And you know, obviously, you can think what you want about, about them. But I, I think that it is definitely something to consider within your business and, and make it work for you. Because again, the customers are there. I, I think it's super contextual on what you're selling. Super contextual. Yeah. So if you're like Allbirds, right? You're like the only company that makes these like wool shoes. Um, well, you can sell on your website, right? No, there's nowhere else to get wool shoes of that kind. Like uh, maybe yeah. now there is with like knockoffs or whatever, but you know, you, they like reinvented the shoe to a degree. And so great. You can have a D2C only focus and build a moat, a moat around that. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a zillion other examples, like generally speaking, the more, quote unquote, innovative the thing, like the more you can skew D2C only or at least D2C first before you yeah. go into Amazon or if you ever go into Amazon, maybe you don't need to. Um, I guess the, and the other piece there is like 
if you just have an epically big brand, right? Like Nike famously left Amazon because candidly, they're not that innovative from like a structural standpoint of their shoes anymore, but their brand is so massive. And if you want Nikes, like you're going to get Nikes and you're going to go, you're happy to go to the Nike store. So those two variables, I think, allow you to really have that D2C first focus. But if you're like, you know, if you're us, like we, we like to think we're doing things innovatively within our categories, you also can't kid yourself that there are no substitutes. And so, you know, if there are feasible substitutes, then you not being on Amazon just is going to lose sales for you. It, it just, it just is. And maybe you're okay with that strategically and maybe you're not, but you know, if someone can buy something else instead of you and they're not going to be really upset about it, well, now you have to think a lot longer and harder about not going on Amazon. Absolutely. I think, that, you know, in my head, there's like this, this scale of like a more commoditized product for something that's more luxury. And then when you get to the more luxury side of things, it's definitely a more heavily branded experience. And in a business like that, is 100% capable of probably just living on their own on their own .com and, and, and being perfectly well. But if you get now more towards a, a commodity, especially with like lower average order values, where it's almost an impulse buy, you're absolutely missing out if you're not getting those customers off Amazon. Yeah, you actually raise a good point there. Like, There are also some things that you just want a lot of specs and you want different viewpoints and things to buy. It's more of like a quote-unquote consultative sale, although it's not a human consulting, but it's like, you know, that was the whole idea behind Zappos is like people shop for shoes in a very specific way. They want like a 360 degree view and it's just a different, like Amazon is great, but it also has a totally templatized, uh, commoditized user interface. So they're not going to change the whole interface just because for one category shoes, people like to look at things a different way. But Zappos can because all they're selling is shoes, right? So I guess that would be a third way that, 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 or for third reason why D2C only and not Amazon could work is like, is the way people shop for your thing fundamentally different? And you can create an interface that makes shopping for that thing better that Amazon literally cannot duplicate. I mean, I would say that you couldn't create a better user experience on your own website better than Amazon always like you know because your sell like because your customer journey and the points that you need to get across and how your customer wants to interact with that buying of that product you can always make it better than what Amazon does because it just makes everybody fit into this mold but you know it's something that you just said a second ago and it's like it's not Amazon or you know a Shopify store for example you know it, it the world it doesn't have to be black and white you can build you can build a business to where there's you use both and you have specific tactics for each. Totally. Uh, or you cannot. Like it's all, it all comes down to your strategy. Like I don't sort of um, claim to have all the answers. I, I just like there are other brands sort of similar to us that went D2C only and they crushed it, you know? So it's, it's, it's just a choice. And, and of course, you know, there's always the platform risk, right? Like the Zynga building games just on Facebook, ch Facebook changes their algorithm. Seeing the uh, you know new users plummets right. There's that platform risk that comes with Amazon, and you know there's also the data element, right? You not getting all um, 
all the data of your customers and Amazon holding that in their walled garden, so to speak. That being said, I think different platforms have radically different platform risk. And and like a classic example is like Google, they have all your data. Why wouldn't they blackmail you? Well, they wouldn't blackmail you because if they blackmail one person or reveal their search history, their entire user base loses trust and it's a gigantic net negative for them. So for Amazon, you know, they are incentivized for you to sell more product, right? And if they make it harder for you to sell product, they make it harder for a zillion people to sell product and they make less money, right? So, you know, you just have to evaluate what the platform risk is relative to the opportunity that that platform offers you. And for us, it's um, a net positive for sure. Absolutely. Will, uh, is there anything I forgot to ask you about today that you think would resonate with our audience? No, I mean, I could, I could go on, on on any topic um, at all. all. All of this stuff's fascinating to me. You know, I guess the only thing I would add is, and this may sound obvious or cliched or whatever, but the one thing I just failed to truly appreciate is how important your product is. Which again, it's, it's obvious, right? But as one person, you can only work on so many things. And I think people tend to make a product. There, there's this whole like concept of get an MVP out, get a minimum viable product out in the market and get feedback and testing. And that's all good and well. But if you don't have a, cla- a, a path to get that to a world-class product, you know, be careful about scaling too quickly until you have a world-class product. Because right? it's way harder to iterate and make it world-class after you have a zillion adopters. Um, and, and also the second piece on that is your product quality is this as a gigantic multiplier. In other words, it makes everything better. It makes it easier to hire people, it makes it easier to retain people, it makes your um, advertising cost of sales better on Amazon, it makes your customer acquisition costs lower, it makes your customer retention costs uh, rate higher. It helps everything, right? Like all the, these metrics, right? Hmm, how do we get lower CAC and how do we get this and that? And it's like, well, we could bid on these keywords. And sometimes people forget, like, if you made the product 10% better, all of it would get better. That's just something I've been thinking a lot about lately. Absolutely. And you're so right with uh, getting an MVP out there is strictly to get feedback from your ideal customers and to get market feedback and try to figure out product market fit. But scaling with an MVP is a recipe for disaster. Yeah, I mean, it can ruin you. It can bankrupt you, right? I mean, it's like... Uh, yeah, if someone's first experience with, with you know, your, your product or brand is lackluster, you know, that the first impressions are, are a real thing. Yeah, they, they absolutely are. So for those that are interested in the product and they kind of want to check something out, where should they go? Yeah, so eatiqbar.com, eatiqbar.com is the website, um, at eatiqbar are our social handles. Um, I've been uh, more more um, verbose on LinkedIn lately, um, just sharing business lessons. So you can follow me. At, uh, again, my name is Will Nitza, N-I-T-Z-E. Um, and yeah, that, that's pretty much it. Check out our website though. I mean, that we, we go into everything, including the 
research and science behind all, all the, the things that we do. Awesome. Thanks so much for coming on. And I'm sure I'll invite you back in a couple of months and we'll dive into one of these things that we kind of talked about for next time. Yeah. Thanks for having me. All right. I can't thank our guests enough for coming on the show and sharing their knowledge and journey with us. We've got a lot to think about and potentially add into our own business. You can find all the links in the show notes. Make sure you head over to honestecommerce.co to check out all of the other amazing content that we have. Make sure you subscribe, leave a review. And obviously, if you're thinking about growing your business, check out our agency at electriceye.io. Until next time.